Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from my panel of expert speakers. We will now allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Norma. And I would like to also join you in welcoming everyone to today's program, What's New in the Treatment of Metastatic Breast Cancer. And today's program is one that I know many of you are waited, have waited a long time for us to do this program. It's an important topic, and um, there's much new to hear, for you to hear about. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, as well as many other breast cancer organizations. Um, and um, I have to say, at the end of the program, you will be getting an evaluation form, but you'll also be getting a listing of all the resources we mentioned during the program and all of the collaborating organizations as resources for you as well, in addition to this call. Um, now, uh, today's program um, is, uh, we have lots of people on the call today, and you come from all of the United States, from both rural, urban, and suburban areas, and we also have participants internationally from um, Austria, Brunei, Canada, India, Portugal, Slovenia, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So it's really a credit to you that you've all on the call today. And we have over 500 participants on the call today, so it's really a quite an impressive group of people listening to this program today. Today's program is supported by AbbVie, Novartis Oncology, Pfizer, and an educational grant from Daiichi Sainko, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of this program and their collaboration in making this possible. Now, we have wonderful speakers on the program today, so I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Jen Rosa Grana. Dr. Grana is Medical Director, MD Anderson Cancer Center at Cooper, Division Head, Hematology and Medical Oncology, the Cooper Health System, Professor of Medicine at Cooper Medical School at Rowan University. Um, and uh, Dr. Um, Dr. Grana is going to be addressing an overview of what's new in the treatment of metastatic breast cancer, the role of genomic testing in understanding your metastatic breast cancer and its treatment options, diagnostic testing and technologies, why they are important, and precision medicine, what is it, and examples of new treatment approaches. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Grana. Thank you very much, Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm going to begin by defining uh, what are we talking about when we're dealing with metastatic disease. It's really a disease that extends beyond the breast and the draining lymphatic nodes. Uh, it, it spreads to the lung, liver, bone, brain, or other locations. 90% of women in the United States, when they're diagnosed with metastatic disease, had a prior history of breast cancer and have a primary treatment team that has been caring for them. In other countries, as many as 50% of women are newly diagnosed with metastatic disease. We call that a de novo or a new uh, diagnosis of metastatic disease. Prognosis of metastatic breast cancer depends on many things. It depends on features of the cancer, and we're going to come back to talk about this, the estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, the HER2 new status of the cancer. And these things also influence treatment choices. But prognosis is also affected and depends on sites of metastases. We know that people with uh, skin and lymph nodes do better than bone, that do better than lung, and then liver or brain. It also depends on time from the original diagnosis to the development of metastatic disease. Patients that tend to recur earlier uh, tend not to fare quite as well. And prognosis also depends on the patient's overall health and their ability to tolerate more or less aggressive therapy. The approach that we currently have to metastatic disease is to approach it as a highly treatable but usually not curable disease, although we all have patients that can be in very long remission. The question is, are those patients cured? Uh, how do we follow those patients? Do we maintain them on chronic therapy? But again, I tell my patients that this is a highly treatable diagnosis. The most important thing for prognosis 
and for treatment planning, uh, treatment selection, begins with a tissue diagnosis. I think it's very, very important that a biopsy be done of an area of metastatic disease rather than just relying on a scan that may show an abnormality. It's important to get a tissue diagnosis because, number one, it confirms your diagnosis. And it gives you key features of the cancer, such as the estrogen, progesterone, and HER2 new receptors that will guide treatment selection. But it also gives you tissue to send for molecular profiling and genomic profiling that we're going to talk about later uh, in an, as we move forward. So to me, a tissue diagnosis, whenever possible, is ideal. Sometimes in rare situations, it may not be, but I really try at all costs to try to get a tissue diagnosis, both to confirm as well as to select treatment. The second most important thing is appropriate diagnostic imaging, and that's done to get a true sense of the extent of disease and also to know what you're going to follow to assess the success of your treatment. Um, in some settings, we do CAT scan of the chest, abdomen, pelvis, and bone scan. That gives us a sense of all of the areas that could be involved. In some places, PET scan or PET-CT is done as the initial uh, imaging study. There's a lot of debate back and forth of which of those two are a better approach, but the reality is that uh, they are often interchangeable, and the key is that you will follow an imaging study long term. Another important part of the early diagnosis is looking at tumor markers. Tumor markers are proteins that are shed into the bloodstream by the cancer. Two common ones that are often looked at in metastatic disease are something called CA27-29 and CA15-3. In 50% of patients that have metastatic disease, these markers are elevated and if they're elevated, they can be followed to assess response to treatment. So you can follow them every one to two months, and it gives you a sense, a less intrusive sense than imaging, of whether your treatment is working or not. Again, in 50% of patients, they're elevated and are helpful. In 50% of patients, they're not elevated at all, and then you don't follow them long term. Now, what is genomic profiling and molecular profiling? It really is the ability to assess the tumor for genetic alterations that have occurred in the tumor as opposed to genetic alterations uh, that one is born with that predispose you to develop cancer and are often looking at hereditary risk. So in the world of metastatic disease, genetic testing may be done to see if you carry a genetic alteration in BRCA1, BRCA2, or other hereditary markers but the genomic profiling that we're looking at is really looking at the changes in the tumor rather than other genes and really trying to get a sense of what treatment options we have available to us. This is done on the initial biopsy that is done to document metastatic disease, although there are now tools that can be done on blood. So we now have the option of both looking at the tumor itself or uh, liquid biopsies, if the specimen of tumor is not sufficient to get a good study, liquid biopsies are ways of doing molecular profiling based on shed uh, uh, DNA from the tumor. There are commercially available uh, genomic profiling tests. Uh, Foundation Medicine has one. Keras has one. There are several others. And there are institutional tests called, that use next-generation sequencing. So depending on the institution you are being treated at, they may recommend that you undergo uh, testing at their institutional platform, or they may send your tumor out for testing at one of these commercial labs that I mentioned. The hope when one of these tests is ordered is to identify alterations in the tumor itself that can be targeted with our treatment. And the field is still very young. The field is not perfect by any means. Sometimes you don't find any genetic alterations to target. Sometimes you find genetic alterations to which we don't have any drugs yet identified. There is a common genetic alteration that is found in many, many uh, cancers called a P53 mutation for which there is no drug uh, to target. So this is an evolving field. 
But I want to give you a couple of examples of findings that can be found in genomic profiling that can change a woman's treatment. So, for example, if your tumor has an ESR1 mutation or an estrogen receptor mutation, it's been shown that it's better to use fulvestrant or fastlodex than an aromatase inhibitor. If your tumor has microsatellite instability high features, that is an indication to use a drug such as pembrolizumab or Keytruda. And if your cancer has a mutation in something called PIK3CA, there's a new drug that's just been approved called Elpelisis or PICRAE that can be useful in those cancers. So again, the idea is to look at genomic profiling to help define a treatment plan for a patient and to identify various strategies to treat that patient. So next, let's talk about how is treatment selected. Uh, and this is an area that's changing relatively quickly. If a cancer is hormone positive, particularly if it's not rapidly progressive disease, we use hormonal agents plus or minus new drugs called CDK46 inhibitors. Uh, there are three drugs on the market uh, in that category of drugs. You may have heard drugs such as uh, uh, Ibrams, uh, uh, um, uh, Verzenio, um, uh, and um, another agent. So clearly there are drugs on the market that can be helpful when used with hormonal agents. Many patients can stay on these agents for many years. And again, uh, there's still some debate as to whether all patients should have hormone plus these adjuncts or not. But there is clinical trial data that shows that if you compare hormonal therapy alone to hormonal therapy plus one of the CDK46 agents, you actually improve time to progression and time to need to change therapy from up to 12 months uh, versus 24 months when you have the combination therapy. So clearly a very meaningful uh, improvement. The key, however, is that as you look at these uh, uh, new agents and the addition of these new agents, toxicity increases, so not all patients may be recommended this, and it, the choice of agents and the choice of whether to use one of these adjuncts often depends on the patient's other health uh, considerations and, and patient's goals. Once a patient is on hormonal therapy, the goal is to continue hormonal therapy until one of two things happens. Either you move from one agent to another, but you run out of hormonal agents, or the pace of the disease changes and becomes more aggressive, and it's now time to move on to systemic chemotherapy. In a patient who's hormone receptor positive, if she has particularly aggressive disease, we may choose chemotherapy from the beginning rather than going the hormonal therapy and adjunct uh, therapy route, and we'll save those agents for the future. So the selection of therapy in a hormone-positive patient depends on the pace of her disease uh, and her general health in terms of deciding a route. If a cancer is HER2-new-positive, we have a wide variety of HER2-new-targeting uh, agents that are available. We have agents such as Herceptin, Pergetta, Capsilla, Ticurb, Lapatinib, and these can be used alone in combination with each other or in combination with chemotherapy. And there are some newer agents that are coming along that clinical trials have uh, shown to have activity. So ultimately, the key for the HER2-new positive population of patients is that the pathway is quite different, but very, very active. So uh, HER2-new positive disease uh, outcome has changed very dramatically. If a patient is considered triple negative, uh, meaning estrogen, progesterone, and HER2 new negative, chemotherapy is the main approach. A variety of agents can be given alone or in combination, depending on the presentation and on the severity of disease. Most of these agents are intravenous. One is oral, capecitabine or zolota. And the key in the, HER in the triple negative patient population is that we really want to look for targets in the genomic profiling uh, and in our general testing because we're looking for other approaches for that population. 
there's data that the androgen receptor uh, may be uh, targetable in these patients, and some of the uh, drugs that are used for prostate cancer can be looked at. Uh, there's something called PDL1 testing, uh, which helps us identify patients that may be treated with a tesalizumab or pembrolizumab. Uh, these are immune therapies. So clearly, the approach to triple negative disease is changing, and oftentimes immunotherapy combinations with chemotherapy are used early on. So again, this is a rapidly evolving field, and genomic profiling is going to help us with this population. So again, looking at precision medicine and targeted therapy, these are new terms that say that we are going to specifically target a cancer with a focused agent. In the past, we did estrogen receptor positive tumors and we did hormonal therapies. We did HER2 new positive tumors and we did Herceptin in others. But as we move forward and take full advantage of these precision medicine tools, uh, we really are looking at these uh, next generation sequencing, foundation medicine, Keras, and others, uh, and the results from those to help us identify abnormalities in a tumor to which there are specific drugs. Uh, again, as examples, PIC3 uh, and, uh, and Alpalacid, PDL1 and Pembrolizumab, and others, this is just the beginning. There's some fascinating clinical trials that are being done uh, looking at beginning to change how we approach cancer in general. Rather than just doing studies in breast cancer, we're doing studies in cancers that have a specific mutation. So it may be lung, breast, and others that have a specific mutation. So I know Dr. Maitra is going to talk much more about this, but the reality is that how we approach cancer may be evolving in the next few years. So the message I'm going to conclude with here is that this is a rapidly evolving field. It's important to communicate with your team so that they're fully aware of your goals and keep you very well informed of the research that's unraveling. It's important for you to get involved in research. Clinical trials will keep identifying new drugs and new pathways and new targets, and it's important for you not only to participate in clinical trials if they become available to you, but to stay informed of the results of those clinical trials as they may change the options available to you. But finally, I think it's very important to stay positive, to take advantage of all the modalities that are available to you, both uh, chemotherapy, radiation, biologic therapy. I am a firm believer in mind-body strategies as well as they can help you deal with the side effects of therapy and also may improve response to therapy. So really take advantage of all that's available to you. And with that, I'll stop. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Glana. That was really outstanding and really set the wonderful tone for today's program and covered a lot of, of information. So thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and um, our next speaker is Dr. Jennifer Metro. Metro, and Dr. Metro is going to a, is a physician, Rena Rowan Breast Center, Abramson Cancer Center, Assistant Professor of Clinical Medicine, Division of Hematology Oncology, Perelman School of Medicine, University of Pennsylvania. And Dr. Metro is going to be addressing the importance of clinical trials, examples of how clinical research may improve your care controlling side effects, symptoms, and pain, and key questions to ask your healthcare team about your follow-up care and quality of life concerns. It's really my great uh, honor and privilege to uh, turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Metro. Thanks, Dr. Messner. Um, so, so, yeah, I'm going to talk about clinical trials, uh, how they're why they're important, uh, how they can directly improve your own care, and then we'll also talk about uh, controlling side effects of specific treatments and of the cancer itself and important things to make sure that you're talking about with your healthcare provider. So clinical trials are an essential aspect of oncology care uh, and the advancement of cancer treatment. All medications that are currently being used in breast cancer and every other cancer were once being studied in a clinical trial by women with breast cancer and uh, who were willing to join those trials in order to advance the field. There have been several new drugs approved in the last few years for breast cancer, which have really changed the landscape and significantly improved how well uh, people are doing. Uh, these 
came out of large clinical trials. Dr. Grana mentioned uh, some of them, uh, but just to give you an example of some of the drugs that, that many of you are, have probably been familiar with, uh, but Ketsyla for HER2 positive breast cancer, uh, the three CDK4-6 uh, inhibitors of uh, palbocyclib, ribocyclib, and abemocyclib for hormone positive breast cancer, and then most recently, uh, the drug atezolizumab or, or Tecentrix, uh, which is the first immunotherapy drug that was approved uh, for triple negative breast cancer. So uh, while the ultimate goal of a clinical trial is to discover new and effective therapies for cancers that will benefit patients in the future, the reality is that most patients wouldn't volunteer to participate without the belief that they would benefit themselves. Uh, the, there are several different phases of clinical trials, and it's really important to be aware of what each of those phases mean. Uh, so I'll go through those phases just briefly. Uh, there are four phases of clinical trial development. The first phase is uh, really the, the earliest phase. It's the, a new drug is just uh, coming into development, and it's mostly a dose-finding study. So uh, there is some some laboratory evidence that this drug is effective against specific cancer cells. Uh, they're trying it in humans probably for the first time, and they don't know yet what the side effects are going to be, what the tolerability is going to be. And so in those early phase one studies, they're looking mainly for the safest dose. Uh, and they start low and they escalate up. Uh, and once they reach uh, what they consider a safe dose based on uh, tolerability, that's the dose that then goes into uh, a phase two study. Uh, phase two study is uh, once you have the dose, uh, you start investigating it in a smaller number of patients to see if there is a sign of efficacy. Uh, so phase two studies are uh, usually a couple of hundred patients uh, that uh, and it are oftentimes single arm, so it's not necessarily a randomized study uh, where there are there's an option where you would or wouldn't get the drug. Um, in this study, they're looking um, oftentimes just to see if there's an, uh, an effect. Um, in some phase two studies, especially in, in breast cancer, you'll see where uh, a new drug that's in, that's in development is paired with a standard drug and that there is a placebo control uh, arm. And in that placebo arm, you're not getting nothing. You're getting still a standard of care drug uh, for breast cancer. Uh, but you may have the opportunity then to get that experimental uh, drug. Once uh, a drug graduates from phase two, uh, it has that shows early efficacy, uh, that there is a significant benefit of that drug over the standard of care. Uh, and that they graduate then into larger studies with potentially a thousand or more women, where they can really narrow down what the benefit is and compare it in, in against what would be the default uh, standard treatment. Uh, and phase three studies are the ones that generally lead the FDA uh, to approve a, a specific medication. Uh, and then phase four studies we don't usually hear that much about, but these are kind of post-marketing studies. Uh, so once a drug is approved by the FDA, uh, the, the drug company still keeps tabs on toxicity and efficacy. Uh, they, they may be conducting additional studies to confirm the results of earlier phase studies. And most of the time, these studies ultimately will confirm what was uh, originally found uh, and, and continue to support the ongoing approval of that drug. But in, in rare cases, uh, these post-marketing studies will find that the benefit that was originally seen was actually not as big as uh, initially thought. Uh, an example of this is the drug Avastin, which was approved conditionally in breast cancer several years ago, and then after uh, a few years of, of use, additional studies came out that showed that there really was not a significant benefit for that drug, uh, so we don't use it as much anymore. Um, so if you're considering a clinical trial, it's also helpful to know what to expect uh, as you're starting to, to enroll uh, onto a trial. Um, all patients have to go through a screening process to determine if you meet pre preliminary eligibility criteria. So these things are pretty standard and include normal organ function like normal kidney function and liver function, that you have a good functional status, meaning you can walk around and, and 
take care of yourself and be independent in most things. Uh, many trials have requirements that you have already had a certain type or um, a specific uh, treatment, such as uh, in HER2-positive breast cancer clinical trials, uh, most of them, all patients had to have had Herceptin and Progetta uh, in order to then be uh, eligible for studies looking at new HER2 drugs. Uh, many trials also limit the number of prior treatments that you're allowed to have had before enrolling on the study. Uh, but once you meet those preliminary eligibility criteria, you'll go through a more extensive screening process. Uh, and this is something that, that it can be considered a benefit to you because uh, they include things that are standard of care, like a CAT scan and a bone scan, uh, but they might include additional things that wouldn't necessarily be done if you were starting on another standard of care. And this might be a cardiac assessment, such as an EKG or an echocardiogram, or uh, additional blood tests that aren't typically monitored day-to-day uh, -day or week-to-week -week when you're on a standard chemotherapy uh, or, or other targeted therapy. Uh, most uh, centers that have clinical trials will have you work directly uh, with a research nurse. Um, so these are very specialized nurses um, that have intimate knowledge of the clinical trial, and they work kind of one-on-one -on -one with all of the patients in the study. Uh, they're available to, to be contacted if you have questions about the study schedule or the study drugs. And they're also really helpful to us in clinic, uh, to the providers, to the physicians, uh, by keeping us up to date on things that are due uh, at each time point uh, and, and keeping us updated uh, with how the patients are doing. Uh, if you're on a clinical trial, you are likely to be seen more often than you would otherwise be seen. Uh, for some people, this may be a benefit. For others, it might be a bit of a hardship. Uh, but the reason that we tend to see you more often is because if it's a new drug, then we want to know if you're having side effects so that we can intervene and make sure that, that, uh, that you're safe. Uh, some trials require weekly visits, uh, even if the, the, the medication isn't given every week, uh, just to make sure that, that, that we're keeping a close eye on things. Uh, and imaging tests, which is how we follow the cancer and see if it's responding to uh, the, the treatment, the, the trial treatment, uh, are often done more frequently than they would be if you were just on a standard of care treatment. Uh, so most of the time, if you're just on a routine uh, therapy, you might get scans um, every three months, uh, most often, more often every four, sometimes even six months. Um, but in clinical trials, more and more, they're doing them every two months um, or, or, or three months really at most. And the reason that we do that is because we want to know sooner rather than later if things are going well or not going well so that we can either make a decision to, to keep the treatment going or switch you to something new, to something different if this new drug is not working. Uh, so the primary way that clinical trial research really improves your care is by giving you direct access to these new drugs uh, and bringing new and improved treatment options directly to you. Uh, so now I'm going to shift into uh, controlling side effects and symptoms. Uh, unfortunately, all of the medications that we have for, for, for breast cancer have side effects. Um, you're, you're likely to have some side effects, almost nobody has all side effects, um, but what's really important is to be prepared, to know what to expect, uh, and to make sure that you're discussing with your team uh, what, what is typically seen with the medications that you're on. Don't be afraid to ask questions about the side effects of drugs, the frequency of those side effects, and what you can do to prevent those side effects. Uh, should you have preventative nausea or diarrhea medications? Um, are there other ways that we can prevent neuropathy, like um, with icing of the hands or feet, similar to the way that we use cold caps to prevent hair loss? Uh, if you're starting on a new medicine, uh, it's probably wise not to plan a major event right after your first treatment uh, because you don't know how you're going to feel. Some people feel fine and have no uh, really no downtime after each treatment, but others may have a day or two 
uh, where uh, their energy level is less and uh, it's harder to, to, to do your usual activities. Uh, but how you do after the first treatment generally predicts how you're going to do after subsequent treatments. It's very rare for you to do just fine after the first treatment, have no nausea or diarrhea, and then suddenly after the second or third treatment to have uncontrolled nausea or diarrhea or other side effects like that. Uh, the main thing that we see that can build up over time is the fatigue. Um, it's also important to have um, a thermometer at home to be able to check your temperature if you're not feeling well or if you're having chills and sweats, uh, and make sure that you have uh, a 24-hour phone number to contact your care team uh, if you have any side effects that you aren't expecting or if the severity is more than you are expecting or more than you can handle on your own. I want to spend a couple minutes talking about controlling pain because, unfortunately, this is something that we commonly see in metastatic breast cancer. Uh, it's really important to understand what's causing the pain and where the pain is coming from. Uh, most of the time, it's because of a cancer spot, for example, a spot in the bone that's, that's causing pain. But occasionally, it's, uh, there can be something called referred pain, which means that you have pain in one place that's actually caused by a cancer spot in a totally different place. So knowing where and why you're having the pain is essential to coming up with an adequate plan to treat that pain. Pain control has become more and more challenging over the last few years as we've become more aware of the opiate crisis and the potential for abuse of these medications. And a lot of women, uh, rightly so, are concerned about the potential for becoming addicted to these, to the, the more powerful pain medications that we have. And I want to try to reassure you that uh, when used for real cancer-related pain, the risk of addiction to these drugs is quite low. Um, we do see something called tolerance, which means that you might need a higher dose to get the same effect of pain control, but that doesn't mean that there's a, a dependency on the drug. Um, with, with breast cancer and other cancers where, where patients are on chemotherapy, we're oftentimes limited uh, in our non-opiate pain medication options. Uh, for example, Tylenol uh, can mask a fever, uh, which we usually want to know if you're having, uh, and NSAIDs like ibuprofen or Motrin or Aleve, naproxen, uh, might not be recommended if you have um, some kidney dysfunction or if your blood counts like your platelets are low because of the increased risk of bleeding. So it's important to talk to your, to your providers about whether or not these non-opiate options are, are things that, you're, that you can consider incorporating. Maybe just check your temperature before you take some Tylenol. Uh, but really important to discuss with your team um, and especially if you have concerns about using opiates, to discuss those concerns with your team as well. We do have um, some non-opiate uh, medications, uh, specific ones may treat uh, pains, pain that comes more from nerve damage or nerve irritation, so drugs like gabapentin and duloxetine uh, often can help us with uh, nerve-related pain, so that might be either nerve pain related to a chemotherapy toxicity, or if you have nerve damage from uh, a cancer spot, for example, in the spine that irritated some of the nerves there. Um, it's also important to think about non-medical pain interventions. Uh, so radiation can be a very effective way uh, and a very durable way to relieve pain. Um, some uh, some patients will benefit from, from nerve blocks, so if you have uh, pain you know, uh, in in a in an extremity uh, or in the abdomen where it's very difficult to do radiation or uh, it's it's really related to nerves that are extending down into that area. Um, sometimes nerve blocks can be done, and that can can cause more longer lasting pain relief. And then non uh, other non medication things like acupuncture, yoga, meditation, these can all help with pain. Uh, it's just important to check with your own doctor to ensure that these are safe in your particular case. Um, then uh, key questions to ask your healthcare team about your follow-up care and quality of life concerns. Uh, in the case of metastatic breast cancer, follow-up is, is likely to be lifelong. Uh, you're going to have this oncologist team uh, with you 
for, for the duration. Uh, the frequency of follow-up is going to depend on the schedule of the treatment that you're on and how well you're doing. Uh, if you're on a weekly chemotherapy regimen, you may uh, be seen weekly uh, by the, the provider, by the doctor or nurse practitioner, uh, or you may see them once a month and just come in for your infusions. It varies depending on uh, the specific practices where you're treated. If you're feeling poorly, uh, you may be scheduled to come in more often uh, so that uh, your team can keep a closer eye on you and make sure that they're managing symptoms. Uh, and then as you start to feel better, those visits get spaced out again. Uh, so it's important to ask your team, how often will you be seen? Uh, how often are my treatments? Uh, you want to know specifically how toxic this regimen that you're on is going to is going to be, and how will it will affect your quality of life. Uh, you want to make sure that your team is informed of any family events or life events that you want to prioritize, uh, any travel plans or trips that you uh, that you have made, uh, because even though there's a schedule of the, the chemotherapy or the treatment that you're on, there's a lot of flexibility there. And uh, a, a treatment can be held uh, or delayed uh, in order to allow you to, to go on that trip or to attend that event and feel as good as possible. It's also really important to think about your goals, to think about uh, if you'll be happy or satisfied if you're spending a lot of your time inside because you're tired or you have side effects from the treatment that you're getting, or do you have activities uh, and, and things that, that you want to participate in that you want to feel up for, that you want to have good energy uh, to participate in. Uh, so these are all things to ask your healthcare team about balancing the your quality of life goals as well as the the effectiveness of the treatment and the side effects and toxicities of these treatments. So to conclude and, and summarize, uh, clinical trials are essential to, to cancer care. All current patients are benefiting from past patients who participated in them, and f uh, future patients are going to benefit from your participation in clinical trials. You, uh, you'll get closer follow-up while you're on a clinical trial, and the main advantage to you is that you would potentially be, uh, get access to promising new medications uh, earlier before they come out on the market. Uh, side effects and symptoms are unfortunately uh, just part of, part of the day-to-day -day, uh, when living with metastatic breast cancer, but we have very good medications now uh, to manage these side effects, uh, to manage uh, nausea, to manage uh, GI side effects, uh, pain, so that the impact on your quality of life should really be minimal. Um, palliative care teams can also be integral to this uh, to make sure that, that, that all of the symptoms and side effects that you're experiencing are optimally managed. Uh, and then it's uh, important to make sure that you're communicating with your healthcare team. Tell them about how you're feeling. Uh, it's a give and take process. Uh, we can only help if you tell us uh, what you're feeling. Uh, and make sure that you communicate your goals and priorities and, and what's, what's important to you as you go through your treatment. And uh, I'll finish up there. Thanks, Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Nature. That was really outstanding and really covered so many important areas in terms of just so many different areas, and I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. So um, thank you so much. The questions are coming in already. So thank, thank you so much. It's really wonderful. Um, and our next speaker is Ms. Lauren uh, Chatelian, and Ms. Chatelian is going to be addressing uh, Cancer Kids Free Psychosocial Women's Programs and Services and the role of support groups. And it's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Chatelian, who is an oncology social worker here, by the way. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. Um, as Dr. Mesner mentioned, I am an oncology social worker at Cancer Care, and I'm also Cancer Care's Women's Cancers Program Coordinator. As an oncology social worker at Cancer Care, I provide supportive services to individuals and families impacted by a cancer diagnosis. The Women's Cancers Program aims to be a primary comprehensive source of support, information, and guidance for women facing cancer and their loved ones. Our goal is to meet women wherever they may be on their cancer journey. In my role, I maintain a clinical concentration in women 
camp changing trends and new knowledge that affects the program and delivery of our clinical interventions. I coordinate programmatic activities and outreach related to the Women's Cancers Program as well as create and implement women's cancer support groups and community events throughout the year, including services specifically offered to those diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. I work with those diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer and their families. At Cancer Care, our professional licensed oncology social workers are trained in how a metastatic breast cancer or MBC diagnosis impacts an individual, as well as their loved ones and support system. We are aware of the financial demands, physical changes, social adjustment, and psychological impact that MBC can have on an individual. Cancer Care provides an array of services, including individual counseling and support groups offered in person in the New York, New Jersey area, as well as short-term over-the-telephone nationally. Additional services include access to additional educational workshops, reading materials, as well as limited financial support. Individual counseling can offer a space to express your feelings, emotions, and concerns one-on-one -on -one with an oncology social worker. A social worker can offer support and guidance as well as help navigate difficult decision-making or communication with loved ones, among other challenges specific to your diagnosis. Adjusting to and finding new ways of coping with this diagnosis can be an important part of your healing process. You and your social worker can discuss what led you to cancer care and explore the ways in which we can offer support. Joining a support group can be a way of connecting with others going through a similar experience who may understand what you may encounter throughout diagnosis and treatment. Being a member in a support group can offer the opportunity to speak with others, gather and provide support, as well as obtain information. A support group may help to reduce feelings of loneliness and help to increase feelings of hope and empowerment. Finding support through other individuals during this challenging time can be very helpful. At this time, Cancer Care offers specific MBC support groups, MBC online support groups, and an MBC telephone support group. We also offer a breast cancer support group, a metastatic cancer support group, women's cancer support group, and general patient support groups in person at our New York and New Jersey offices. If you are interested in learning more about the support services we offer, I encourage you to call Cancer Care's National Hope Line at 800-813-4673 to speak to one of our oncology social workers. Our social workers can help you understand what this diagnosis may mean for you and your loved ones. We can also explore ways to connect with others, including a potential support group. We are here to offer you support throughout this experience and look forward to hearing from you. It has been such a pleasure to be a part of this very informative program today. Thank you for your attention and the opportunity to speak today. And I will now turn our program back to Dr. Mesner. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Shabling. That was really outstanding. And um, and um, I know there will be questions for you as well during the Q&A. And I, I, we now do have time for questions. We have a lot of time for questions. And I'm going to ask uh, Norma to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. We're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Some of you have been queuing up and asking questions already. But I'm going to have Norma tell everybody how to do this because some of you, this may be a new experience. I want to be sure everyone has a chance to ask their questions. So, Norma. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then number one on your telephone keypad. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit your questions by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question comes from Stephanie Kay. Your line is open. I really want to thank you so much for this wonderful seminar. Doctor, thank you so much. Dr. Caroline, thank you so much, Dr. Bessner. I have two questions since I'm a 13-year breast cancer survivor, her too. This is for Dr. Jennifer Matro. I'd like to know about the clinical trial studies that are being done about acupuncture working for peripheral neuropathy and lymphedema because I know that certain insurance companies are not covered, especially Medicare says they will not cover acupuncture, and I'm wondering if there's clinical trials being done now to show that it definitely work uh, on um, breast cancer, can it uh, does it cause any problems with uh, increasing breast cancer? Also, my second question is: Do you have any information about clinical trials on for all the other for peripheral neuropathy with uh, lipoic acid that I use? And I know many people do, and B6, B12. Um, if trials are being done for that, also, I thank you so much. 
Well, thanks, Stephanie. Thanks for your questions. Um, so I'm going to ask Dr. Metro to, Metro to and, and ask your questions in a general way. So the first was about sure. acupuncture and second. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so um, you're right on, that uh, acupuncture, unfortunately, is not covered uh, by insurance in uh, under most plans. Uh, but there is, some, is good data that acupuncture can be very effective for certain side effects related to breast cancer and breast cancer treatment. Um, so it can be very effective with hot flashes, uh, and it can also be effective for the achiness and the stiffness that comes from the, one of the most common medications used in hormone-positive breast cancer, the aromatase inhibitors. Um, there are ongoing studies looking at this. Um, I think it is important that we be get, gathering more uh, rigorous data uh, that we can show so that insurance companies ultimately will start to pay for this really important uh, procedure. Peripheral neuropathy and lymphedema were the two other things that you asked about. And um, yeah, so there are ongoing studies looking at new medications um, such as alpha lipoic acid. Uh, that's something that uh, recently we've started to see a little bit more use of in, in, in my own practice. Um, I have some patients now that are doing, that are uh, kind of putting their hands and feet into ice water, uh, and there, there's, there isn't data for that yet, um, but, but that's being investigated. The idea is that it's similar to what the cold cap does, that it freezes, sort of, uh, constricts the blood vessels in the fingers and toes, which are the places where neuropathy is most likely to affect. And uh, if you pr constrict the blood vessels, the chemotherapy doesn't get there to damage them. Um, of course, the, the, the potential risk and concern is, uh, well, couldn't the cancer cells then go to the tips of the fingers and the tips of the toes? Uh, and while, yes, that is a theoretical risk, we, we haven't seen that happen with the cold cap. We haven't seen uh, an increase in, in metastatic disease going to the scalp. Uh, so, so the risk, I think, overall is pretty low. Um, and then the lymphedema uh, question. So... This is always something that's that's challenging with uh, if you have active metastatic cancer, if you're doing the massage techniques uh, that that are meant to get the lymphatic fluid flowing, uh, could you spread the cancer? And technically, yes, um, by by massaging uh, uh, lymph nodes or arms under the arm that have cancer cells in there, theoretically, yes, you could put them into the into the circulation. But the reality is if you have metastatic breast cancer already, that those cells are already circulating. So the likelihood of doing more damage and making the cancer spread faster is pretty small. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and we have quite a few questions from our online, so we'll rotate between the questions, between the telephone and the online questions, um, just so that um, um, everyone has a chance to ask a question. Um, so here's a question. Um, this would be for Dr. Metro. Um, I am on anastrozole and IV Herceptin every three weeks. Are there any new developments that I should know about? Um, so I'm, I'm gathering that you have HER2-positive breast cancer. Um, right now, the standard of care for HER2-positive breast cancer, the first line of treatment is Herceptin and Progetta. Uh, in combination with uh, a chemotherapy such as Taxol or Taxotere. Uh, and what's, what's typically done is after we give a couple of cycles of the chemotherapy with the Herceptin and the Progetta, we then will stop the chemotherapy because after six cycles, uh, most, most people want a break uh, and just continue the Herceptin and the Progetta. And for women who have hormone-positive breast cancer, we'll add in the endocrine therapy at that time. Uh, so that's the, the the standard of care would be to include the Herceptin and the Progetta uh, with endocrine therapy um, if it's if it's in the early treatment of HER2 positive breast cancer. Excellent, thank you. And so we advise our caller to go back to your treating healthcare team with that information. Excellent, thank you. And um, another question for Dr. Metro: Are all dosages of Abrantz equally effective? I've heard they are. They are, and people moving from 125 milligram to 100 milligram to 75 milligram have higher quality of life. Could you comment on that? Just in yeah. a general way, of course. Yeah, so um, yes, all doses of Ibrance are, well, 
I should say that you don't get decreased efficacy if you have to reduce the dose. Uh, in fact, there is some data that shows that if you have to reduce the dose because of blood counts, because your neutrophils are too low, that those those people are even uh, tend to respond even better. Uh, but I, I can't say for certain that if you reduce the dose because of fatigue or a different side effect that the efficacy is the same, but we do know that if you have to go down to a lower dose because of some toxicity, that yes, we expect the benefit to be the same. Excellent. Thank you. And our next question, Norma? From Amy M., your line is open. I'm wondering how easy or it is to diagnose metastatic breast cancer because I have a friend who just died of it. It seemed like it took an awfully long time for her to get diagnosed. She had like um, reduced mobility and pain and they first they thought it was ALS. So I'm just wondering, and you know, she uh, we don't live in a big uh, metropolitan area, so I'm just wondering how easy it actually is for someone to get a diagnosis of metastatic breast cancer. That's excellent question. Thank you. Yeah, it's a really good question. So it's probably a little bit easier to diagnose metastatic breast cancer if you have a history of early stage breast cancer previously, because if you've already been treated for breast cancer, that's always going to be in the forefront of your and your doctor's minds, that if you have a new symptom or problem, you have to rule out that it's metastatic breast cancer. Um, we, with uh, for for early stage breast cancer, after you've finished your treatment, we don't do routine PET scans or CAT scans or tumor markers uh, because they're not very helpful. Um, but we do symptom-driven testing. So if you have a new symptom, such as unexplained weight loss or a cough that's not associated with other respiratory symptoms and isn't going away, or focal bone pain that would be worked up with whatever would be appropriate x-ray or CAT scan, and that's usually how we detect it. For metastatic breast cancer, that's uh, what we call de novo, or somebody presents with metastatic breast cancer and hasn't been diagnosed in the past, it can be harder to come to that conclusion because that's not necessarily the first thing that you're going to think about. Um, when somebody does have uh, new symptoms, you have to always keep an open mind and keep the the we call it the differential diagnosis, which means the list of possibilities of everything it could be. Uh, that the, that list has to be very broad, and you narrow it down as you go along. And usually the things that will narrow it down are um, initial blood tests. Uh, so with metastatic breast cancer, we might see some liver test abnormalities. We may see some blood tests that suggest that there's cancer in the bone that's causing problems. Um, and then CAT scans are usually how things are found as well, either in the bone or the organs. And then once an abnormality is found, as Dr. Grana mentioned, a biopsy is critical. Uh, but it can be very challenging if there's no prior history of breast cancer. Excellent. Well, and I hope that's helpful to you. And um, I guess also um, it sounds like it was an important friend. So I, I just ask um, Ms. Chatelaine just to comment on just the counseling services we offer here in terms of that that might be something you might want to just call to follow up with. Um, Ms. Shetland, do you want to add anything? Or Yeah, of course. Um, you know, of course, I'm so sorry to hear of your loss. Um, and we do offer counseling services. As I had mentioned, we do offer bereavement services in our offices. Um, and and we can always help to locate you know some type of individualized support nearby um if you're if you're not local to us um and and that can definitely be an important um piece of support as well Excellent. thank you Thanks. that's really important, and so please keep that in mind and um um now, um, we have um, some other questions just um, for Dr. Metro. Um, how common is it for breast cancer survivors to get skin cancer in the area that was radiated? Uh, that's a, a good question. It's not that common from what I understand. Um, there, 
getting radiation can increase the risk of other types of cancers in that area that are still very rare. These are things like angiosarcomas, but melanoma and basal cell and squamous cell cancers, as far as I'm aware, it doesn't significantly increase the risk, but I'm not sure that there's much data out there. So that might be a good question just for them to ask their treating healthcare team or radiologist. Yeah, so I would I would definitely ask your radiation oncologist because they may have more updated information about that risk. Excellent. Thank you. And we have a question from Ms. Chatelaine. Um, it's a question, um, with the changes in treatment of metastatic breast cancer and more success in the longevity of survival, what are the psychosocial needs of metastatic breast cancer patients as opposed to patients with stages one through three? Yeah, of course, that's a great question um, and, and definitely very important. Of course, uh, psychosocial support is um, is important for for all um, for all diagnosed or diagnoses, um, but I do understand that the um, longevity of survival is something to keep in mind. So um, I I would say some of the supports that I had mentioned, so individual counseling, um, some long longer term psychosocial support, something consistent, uh, sustainable. Um, as well as you know, finding a support group um, with those with metastatic breast cancer could be great. Um, becoming involved in, in that community if you feel comfortable in doing so, um, workshops or retreats, as well as mind-body um, techniques. Think about um, meditation or yoga, breathing. Um, continue to find ways that can relieve anxiety or any distress that may arise, um, relaxation techniques. Um, you know, the, it's really determining what may work for you over time, um, and, and this can change um, for you. So it's definitely, you know, a great idea to continue to, to see what may work for you. Um, and you can definitely give us a call um, on our Hope Line, and we can kind of offer some more suggestions um, based upon, you know, specific, um, specific concerns someone may be having. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks very much. Um, and um, I think this will be our final question. Um, so this is an interesting question um, for Dr. Metro. If my treatment is doing well for me, Ebrance, Arimidex, is it okay to go on a trial or take supplements like Chinese herb tea? Um, so in general, if a medication or a cocktail is working, we try not to interrupt it for a, a clinical trial. Um, because there's no guarantee with a clinical trial, and you don't want to give up on something that's giving benefit right away. Um, in terms of supplements, there's very little data for most supplements out there. Um, the reality is, is is that most of them probably are not that harmful, um, but the the main risks with, with any kind of uh, supplement is that one, you don't know what's actually in the supplement, so they're not regulated by the FDA. Uh, so what is listed on the container as the percentages of what's what's in the in the medication or, or what's in the pill is not necessarily what you'd actually find if you tested for it. And then the second bigger concern is how those supplements interact with the medications that you're on. Um, so if you're on a, an effective medication, the last thing you want to do is take a supplement that competes for the same enzyme that your cancer therapy uses because if you're competing for the same enzyme, the risks are that you could increase the metabolism of your cancer treatment, which decreases the efficacy of it, or you could decrease the metabolism of your cancer therapy, which would increase the toxicity. So um, most places have pharmacists that are um, on staff. Uh, I would specific, I would, if you have specific questions about um, specific supplements, I would talk to you. I would ask to get in touch with a pharmacist where you're being treated. Well, this has been an outstanding call. I know we could go on for quite a bit more time. I know there are more questions in queue, but we did say that this would be an hour program, and so I'm trying to. We're trying to keep somewhat to that time. So I want to thank our speakers first of all for being so outstanding. Um, and I want to thank all the participants who really asked such great questions. It really enhances the program today. I, um, so for all of you, everyone working together really makes a very big difference in these programs. 
And I just, um, I think uh, Ms. Shethelin reviewed all the services from Cancer Care for you, so you have a sense of we are available to you. Um, perhaps most importantly, as we conclude the call, we don't want any one of you to feel that you're alone in coping with metastatic breast cancer, any type of cancer, frankly. Um, we want you to know that you're now, you kind of have a, a pipeline to us. We have a, 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 um, a hope line, um, and you can contact us um, you know, any time. That number is 1-800-813-4673, and you'll be getting that, of course, with the evaluation, all those informational pieces. And we also have a website, www.cancercare.org, and you can actually let people, you can actually post a question there, particularly for our international participants, and we will follow up with you, of course, as well, if you have any concerns. Um, and we do have two programs coming up that may be particularly relevant to many of you on the call today. They're both on Monday. They're on, one's on October 28th, same time, preventing chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. So that could be useful to anyone who's currently getting any type of chemotherapy. And the other one is on November 18th, care for your bones during and after cancer treatment, tips to improve your bone health. So I'm hoping that those might be, some of you have signed up for this already, but if you haven't, they're both very relevant um, to, to each of you on the call today. And uh, now, most importantly, as we conclude the call, please know that you not only have the resources of cancer care, but all the other resources that we're going to be giving you um, that you've had, of course, on the materials you got before the call happened, but now you're going to have access to them even more. We'll give you the links to them. And they all offer different services, and the idea is, in this instance, more services that are free are okay to access, actually, because um, each one may provide something different and may provide something that you very much need. So I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day. <laughs>